so good to hear your voices this morning. Can you just take a second and just shout out to the Lord and thank Him for how great He is? I know it's hard. It's... Sometimes we're just so reserved and sitting in that seat, I get it. Like sometimes it's just intimidating to make what's on the inside come outside. It's like, what are they going to think about me? feels like I'm the only voice in the room. And yet those who have been forgiven much, love much. We're going to talk about that today. And as, man, as I hear your voices singing, great are you, Lord, Todd, I guess it was owed to me to uh, have to come up and be broken and not be able to sing because of what the worship team just did for all of us. But thank you, guys. And uh, just one more time, just praise his name. Come on, say it. Great are you, Lord. Jesus. Great are you, Lord. The greatness of God is in our midst. We praise the Lord, our God, today. You can take your seats and... Summit Kids, you are dismissed, and I want you to give a hand for these guys. I want these kids to know that they are in a church that doesn't just tolerate them, but celebrates them. Summit Kids, have such a blast, and thank you to the teachers who are leaving. Thank you to Vicki and Craig and our awesome teachers that are sacrificing a service back there and pouring into these kids' lives in ways that will stick with them forever. Those of parents in the room, amen teaching them truths that they will never forget that will be deep on the inside of them. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to preach God's word to you today. I'm grateful to be in front of such a warm family. What a joy it is to get up before you. I want to invite somebody special to me. I asked him to read our passage today that we're going to be in the book of Matthew, Matthew 9, if you want to go there, verses 9 through 13. Glenn Karsten has been an elder at this church, and he's a founding member. He's been here since the very beginning of this church. He is incredibly funny. He's one of the kindest persons I've ever met. I got to know him, and he's from Chicago, which makes him awesome in my book. Chicago people, let's hear you. Where are you at? I know there's a few. And uh, Glenn has been such, and his family have been such uh, a kind um, part of our lives. And I just wanted to hear him read scripture today, and he was willing to do it. So Glenn, where are you at? There you are. Give him a hand. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you, Corey. Yeah, you bet. Way better introduction than I needed. But I did make it up the stairs, so I'm thankful for that. So in Matthew 9, uh, we, we read some words of Christ, and he has just healed a paralytic. And in verse 9, it says, and as, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Yeah. Thanks, Glenn. You ever wonder, you ever wonder if there's a person that is so awful, so reprehensible, so vile, so evilly motivated, so capable of bringing great destruction and marking the lives of people forever, maybe even changing the world forever. Do you ever wonder if there's a person that's so evil that they 
cannot be saved. They are out of the reach of God's mercy. Now, quick theology on sin. How many of us are sinners in the room today? All, all, have, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 2.23. All of us are sinners. So we're not talking about can God save sinners. We're talking about can God save someone so absolutely reprehensible who could create such destruction and never even be able to make it right? Is there someone so clear? The good news for sinners is that God is willing to save sinners. He says this in Titus 2. We were just in Titus for 13 weeks in our series called Calibrated. And part of the scripture that maybe you memorized with us said that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. All people, all sinners, all of us who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Also good news for sinners like me. God is willing to save sinners. He says that the Lord is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should preach repentance, should reach repentance. That's 2 Peter 3. But we also know from living life, and we know from the scripture when it says, many are called, but few are chosen, we know that not everybody will be saved. And so it creates a little bit of a dilemma for us that says, well, who can't be saved? What's the type of person that can't be saved? Because if we're really sincere, part of us is like, well, I want to make sure I'm not in that category. I want to make sure that everything I'm believing isn't not enough. I want to make sure that I haven't been believing a lie or doing the wrong things or being with the wrong people. So the question this morning in this passage of Matthew 9, 9 through 13, it's a really important question. Is there someone that can't be saved? So think about it. Here's, here's your, your lesson, your assignment right now. Think about some of these vile, reprehensible, awful, murderous people. Think about them. When you ask people like, who's some of the most evil people in the world in history? What's a, what's a name that comes to mind? Exactly. Adolf Hitler, right? He, he is literally the chancellor of Germany, the Fuhrer of Nazi Germany, he, a reprehensible human being who sadly thought he was doing what was right. Right? He's responsible for the extermination of as many as six million Jews. And a figure I never think about is the four million other non-Jews that he killed. Is there salvation for someone who murders 10 million people? What a reprehensible human. Or maybe Joseph Stalin, right? He's usually like the next one you hear. And there's many like this in the evil dictator club. But, uh, you know, he's formed the Soviet Union, an evil dictator responsible for the starvation of millions, the, the public execution of hundreds of thousands repressed his people, evil, 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 right? Bring it into modern day. When I was in uh, high school, I, was, I got invited to go to this summer music camp. All right, any band camp kids here? Band, bandos? Okay, thanks. We, we so got to go to band camp, and it was kind of half leadership, half marching band, which is a thing. It's a thing I don't really honestly miss very much, but it was a thing nonetheless. And one of the things that we would do in Milwaukee, Wisconsin that summer was march in the Hershey's uh, parade down the center of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which if you've ever been there, you're walking down the streets and you smell the wonderful smell of Hershey's chocolate because of the factory that's there. And it was a great time, but I would only find out just a short time after getting home that that smell of chocolate was from a factory where a man named Jeffrey Dahmer was actually working at the time and would soon be caught and found and responsible for the dismembering of like at least 17 young, young men. 
despicable, just the Milwaukee cannibal. Well, why would they call him that, you wonder? And then there's, there's someone like Ted Bundy, right, who confessed to the murders of over 30 people in seven different states. Many people say he confessed to 30, but there could have been hundreds, right? Reprehensible, awful people. Think about just the ripple effect of one of his victims. I mean, all of us have, have discovered loss in some way. Think about the ripple effect of losing a person and how much that changes your life. Someone so immoral that could do this. Then this guy, I'd forgotten about him. Anybody remember the name Philip Garrido? Philip Garrido was the guy who abducted a 14-year-old girl named J.C. Dugard and kidnapped her for 18 years and impregnated her twice until he was caught in, 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 in like 2009 or something. He's serving a 431-year sentence in the state of California. Absolutely despicable type of human being. Can you imagine if that was, was your daughter? And then most recent in the news, Jeffrey Epstein, right? I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to even mention his name here, lest I be suicided, you know? Jeffrey Epstein is, who's, was already convicted of trafficking minors you know, in New York and in Florida, then dies mysteriously in prison. We don't know the contents of his black book. His accomplice, Ghislaine Maxwell, gets sentenced, and still we don't know how many people in high society are complicit in that trafficking. We just learned this. The world is a really awful, broken place full of really, really broken people. Who else? Who else is like almost unforgivable? Think about the scammers who scam the elderly out of their life savings. Think about the, uh, the activists who persuade our culture to celebrate wicked, wicked things calling evil good and good evil. Think about those who abuse women and children. Think about drug dealers who get young people addicted, which will eventually kill them. Think about narcissistic religious leaders who demand to be the object of worship while taking the money of the faithful who follow them reprehensible people like your stomach should turn a little bit thinking about these people and and unfortunately these categories go on and on and on because we live in a wicked broken world full of sinners maybe maybe one of these people are those that can't be saved maybe just so awful so unredeemable so evil that they're beyond the reach of salvation This morning, this is part three in a series called Encounters with Jesus. And our leadership team really had a heart for you, for all of us, to have a series in January, at the beginning of a new year, before we launch into some heavy lifting in the book of 1 Corinthians, to say, let's just sit at the feet of Jesus again and remind ourselves of how wonderful he is, how loving he is, and what kind of supernatural things happen when people come into the presence of Jesus. And these passages, we had Mary and Martha last week, and the week before, Jesus healed some blind men, and now we're talking about Jesus calling a tax collector. And I pray this morning that just as people experience supernatural things encountering Jesus in those times, today because his presence and the Holy Spirit is here today, that we too would experience supernatural things inside our hearts as we focus on his word today. So are you in Matthew 9? Matthew 9, 9 through 13. We're encountering Jesus in the very beginnings of his ministry. Like Glenn said it, he, you know, in the book of Matthew, we, uh, we learn that Jesus is in the city of Capernaum. I didn't, I didn't really register with me as I think about Jesus that this was a pretty important city to him. This was kind of home base for his ministry. It was kind of what they call his second home after Nazareth. The place would really be kind of the administrative hub of his three-year ministry on this earth. And we encounter Jesus, and it says quite simply in the beginning of verse 9, and Jesus passed on from there. 
the city of Capernaum. It's a northern city. You look on Google Maps, look at the Sea of Galilee. Galilee, it's right at the top there. It's kind of fun to look at it because it's such a simple layout. When you look at the city, you can just imagine Jesus walking on those shores. So, so far in this book of Matthew, this gospel account of Matthew that we have, this account of Jesus' ministry, he's been born, obviously. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. He's been tempted 40 days in the wilderness. He begins his earthly ministry by inviting two different sets of two fishermen to follow after him and become his disciples. He's preaching to many crowds. He's performing many miracles. And I love this. Is his miracles are just are telling people about him in the kingdom of God. His miracles are demonstrating some things about Jesus that are very important to understand for them then and us now. And that is this. Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Isn't that good news today? Jesus has authority over sickness and disease. Jesus has authority over the calamities caused by nature. He calmed a storm. Jesus has authority over demonic oppression. And where the enemy seems to have such deep entanglements into the lives of people, Jesus still has authority over demons. And now he's going to show us another miracle that demonstrates something else very important that he has authority over. Look at verse 9. And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Anybody know anything about tax collectors back then? Scum of the earth. I mean, lower than scum. The worst of the worst. Vile, vile people. At those times, he would have been known as a publican. And this is a Jew who has basically sold out his people. He's bought a franchise from the Roman government, a tax-collecting franchise. The agreement is there's so much that we demand in taxes from the people that you'll collect from. Anything you want to charge absorbently above that, you can just keep his profit. So here is a guy... Trading, you know, being a traitor to his own people, treasonous to his culture, who is, who is abusing people, extorting their wealth from them. Wait, it even gets, even gets, if that doesn't make you angry enough, imagine that he, people are just people are people, aren't they? What does he do? He starts to realize, oh, I can take a bribe from a rich man, charge him less taxes, keep the bribe, and then go and overcharge somebody else to make sure I still am able to send enough to Rome. I mean, like, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? This is the kind of guy he is. So he's in a tax booth, which is probably like a, you know, it's, it's, it's like probably right situated on an international highway, they say between Syria and Egypt. And it would be like maybe a lot like a toll booth that we would imagine if you've traveled to Chicago or any major city. There's, there's tolls, there's taxes that are imposed upon you for traveling or maybe whatever your citizenship is or, or what, what stature you have in life or what you're bringing, what goods you're bringing back and forth with you. We understand that because we're people who are taxed. But then there were some kind of tax collectors, and we don't know if Matthew is one of these, but some tax collectors would even go so far as to search and seize, and they might say, hey, well, you've got some personal letters on you. Let me read those letters. And he would stand there and read the letters and go, oh, you have a side business doing this. You know what? I'm taxing you on that too. And they could do those kind of things, and there was absolutely no protection for the Jews. He was completely lucrative career. He was completely covered by Rome. It was just an awful, awful situation that was oppressing people. Have you ever been in a situation where you're just completely scrutinized and just really unfairly treated? All, right? Like, like you've been in a situation where you just know you're absolutely being treated poorly, right? There's a different kind of booth that Ali and I have been familiar with over almost the last 30 years of knowing each other. And that is the Canadian, the uh, Canadian, the Port Huron-Sarnia border, which we've crossed over the past 29 years. 
since we started dating in college. And when we first started as students, it wasn't really a big deal going back and forth because everyone had student visas. And, but then I, I decided to marry that Canadian girl. And then we went through, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, we went through this awful process called immigration where you give lots and lots and lots of money and then you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you're scrutinized and you're scrutinized and you're scrutinized. And that went on for like forever in hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And so we would come into the U.S. after visiting her family for Christmas, and one dramatic time, a guard literally held up her expired visa, which we said, I know it's expired, this just shows who it is, the new one's in the mail, here's the proof that it's coming, and he pulled out a hunting knife and he cut it right down the center in front of us and threw it down on the table. Like, just moments like that where you're absolutely embarrassed, belittled, scrutinized, unfair, doesn't warrant the offense. And so... We got through that, and then travel became easy again because she had a resident alien card. So she's an alien, by the way, if you want to tell her that. And and then this thing happened. um, What do you call it? Um, You know, the shots and the map. COVID, COVID. This thing happens, and... And all of a sudden, like, they go bonkers at the border. Just absolutely crazy, right? And so all of a sudden, now, we're being scrutinized coming into Canada, And about a year and a half ago was like the first time that I got to go back and visit after lockdown and being apart from our family for like a couple of years or something. And we crossed the border and the deal at the the time was you had to have a, you had to have a negative COVID test within 72 hours of intending to cross over the border. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of tricky because you had to get a COVID test scheduled. You had to do it enough early that you'll get your results, but not too early that the results expire, and so we played that game, traumatized our kids with these nose swabs, and right, Graham? Not fun. And so one night where our plan is to get there late at night into Canada, we're so excited, but there's this comedy of errors, the details don't matter, comedy of errors with kids, and locked, locked keys and cars, and all these things happen, and a, and a football game, and a marching band thing, and all this stuff, and we, we didn't end up leaving until much later than we'd hoped to, and then torrential rainstorms all the way, three straight hours to the border, torrential rainstorms. Needless to say, instead of crossing over on one day, we crossed at 1.30 in the morning the next day, and guess whose COVID tests were expired by one hour and 30 minutes? And, but, you know, obviously they were like, oh, totally understand, no big deal at all, happens all the time, right? Yeah, not, not at all. And so at 1.30 in the morning, they turned us around, and we went back to Port Huron, we got a hotel room. We Googled who can give you a rapid PCR test the next morning and how much it was going to be. And so we go to bed. We wake up. We get our PCR test. We sit in a Starbucks until 10.30 in the morning, waiting, hundreds of dollars broker, waiting for these tests to come through so we can just go see our family. And finally, they let us cross. You know, I like to think we did the right thing. I like to think, you know what? We sacrificed. We love our family. We miss them. But now, the next time I crossed the border, I found out that I'm kind of a big deal at the Canadian border. I'm what they call um, someone who has been denied entry into Canada. And that puts me in a special club of people. And when I go through the toll booth, everyone else, they just say, have a great time in Canada. But when I go through, they say, we have a special party prepared for you over at this office that you're going to go in. And we're going to scrutinize you. And we're going to make you feel like a buffoon. And that's happened once already. And then at Christmas break, it happened again. And it was, it was horrible. This guy just, imagine the worst power trip. Absolutely no reason to be this way. I'm doing nothing but yes, sir. No, sir. I understand, sir. And he is just dressing me down. I don't know about you. But like, I don't like that. 
I don't like feeling that way. And I was quite angry. And I might have Googled his name. And I might have looked at where you file complaints. And then I realized you're an idiot because your email and your phone number will be in your files being a complainer. And I just don't think that would really help my situation, Alma. So, so I dropped it. The reality is we laugh at that. But these tax collectors, no joke at all, had the power to really make your life miserable. Matthew is the lowest of the low. Are you getting it? Like the lowest of the low. And he's the kind of guy who is despised by many, many people. I know there's probably some people that don't like me, but I I don't think I'm despised by many, many people. Matthew was despised by many, many people, but he's the kind of guy to which Jesus extends mercy. Check out verse 9 again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. This is a big deal. In Jesus' invitation for Matthew to follow him, he is now demonstrating yet another miracle, not over demonic activity, not over sickness, not over calamities of nature. Now he's demonstrating that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sin and call out the vilest of sinners to follow him. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. So what does this wicked and despised tax collector do? How does he respond? What does he do? Second part of verse 9, he rose and followed him. This is miraculous. Think about this for a second. This is a guy who's rich. This is a guy who's making lots and lots and lots of money. He's already counted his cost. He's already accepted the fact that he's going to be in a different category of society. He's going to be excluded from the synagogue. He's going to be hated by many. But hey, you got lots of money and probably the great company of lots of other sinners just as bad as you. And we don't really have the details of why Jesus was just, can you imagine, like, follow me. Okay, I'll just leave all this and follow you. Like, but think about it. He must have known about Jesus. Capernaum is not not a big place. Some scholars say maybe 1,400 people on the sea. People know each other. Jesus is assembling massive crowds and healing people. I mean, word gets around, right? And so who knows how the Holy Spirit had been working in Matthew's heart to prime him for the moments that the invitation would be extended and that he would follow after him and find life. You know, there's an omission that Matthew's account leaves out Scholars say often that he, le- he leaves out some details that you find in some of the other gospel stories, and they say likely it's because he's just humble. He's just someone who realizes who he was and God, who God has allowed him to be, and so he leaves out the fact that he forsook all and followed Jesus. It just says he followed him, but he forsook all. He left everything he knew, and he followed after Jesus. Something changed in this tax collector's heart that caused him to be willing to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Not only that, he also admits that he's the one who brings Jesus to his house and prepares a feast for him. It just says, all of a sudden, they're sitting at a table in a house. Whose house? Matthew's house. What do you do? Jesus, you have to come to my house. I, I, I need to make you the object of my worship. I need, to, I need to show you my appreciation. And not only does he do that, but he brings his tribe along with him. Look at this first ten. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and reclining, reclining with Jesus and his disciples. It's one thing to receive forgiveness and kind of like enjoy it, right? It's another thing to open the doors of your home and say, everybody like me, get in here. You need to meet this guy. He read my mail. He knows something. You need to meet him. Pretty, pretty powerful indication of change, conviction and change in Matthew's heart. So we learn through this story that Jesus is not afraid to be around 
sinful people. Now, I got to tell you, you hear this a lot from pastors, and it, it can become a thing we say like, oh, you know, if you think you're chewing on this message, boy, I really chewed on it this week. I, but it's the truth. Like, when you study God's scripture and you consider your own life and you consider yourself standing on the stage as if you're some kind of moral expert that has this figured out more than the rest of us, God begins to do things in your heart. And I'm not being dramatic when I say I can think of two times in the course of, of working through and studying this message where I literally just stopped and put my face in my hands and said, God, I'm such a wicked person. Like, I am, I'm not only Matthew but I'm the Pharisee too. I think about the times where I was critical and judgmental and angry at people who made me feel less than or angry that mercy could be extended to someone who has not towed the line, didn't do the diligence, didn't do all the right things like I did. You know, I grew up basically a good kid. I say that tongue in cheek. But I mean, I was kind of the kid that learned really quick that if you just kind of do the rules, if you just say the right things, if you keep the adults happy with you, you're just going to be welcomed into good company. And that really was, was my understanding. And when I got saved, I was surrounded by all these crazy like musicians who did crazy things and they were drug addicts and, and all the, I'll spare the details. And I remember literally saying, I'm just kind of jealous by your testimony. Your testimony is like amazing. Mine is like, you know, stupid. Like I, I just don't even, I didn't get it. And I regret being saved in a church that didn't, I can only receive the blame myself, but for some reason, I didn't really have a real sense of what I was being saved from. When I got saved, it was like, well, I've always kind of loved God, so this just makes sense. Oh, I'm supposed to be a Christian. Now I get it. This is, this is what I'm following. It took me many, many years to realize that God saw my sin no differently than these tax collectors, prostitutes. I mean, literally, when you offend a holy God, it really doesn't matter what you do. If he's offended, you have a problem. And we are born into a sin nature, a sin system that has deeply offended God. And there is no answer for it except that someone would make a substitute and pay a sacrifice for that sin. So think about the discomfort. And this is what I had to wrestle with in my heart. The times where I've just felt grinding my teeth at someone who is different than me, someone who is believing something different than I believe, someone who seemed to get a free pass when I seemed like I was basically a good person, basically doing the right things, though I wasn't. Would it burn you a little bit if to know that like maybe your pastor was in a jail tomorrow visiting and extending mercy to someone who just killed your kid or, or fill in the blank of other things that they could have done. It would be a little difficult, wouldn't it? There's, there's times where God's mercy seems offensive to us when it's for those that have done far worse than we've done. We're happy to accept it for ourselves, right? But for when it's, when it's the others, it can be really different. So by this story, we learn this, that the scum of the earth, too, they're not out of Jesus' reach. They're not out of the reach for his mercy. So then the question, the nagging question persists, who still can't be saved? And with that question, Jesus introduces us to another group of people. Verse 11 says, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I've been trying to imagine the voice of, hey, check out your teacher. I'm trying to think how you might have said it. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now remember, tax collectors and sinners, they weren't just offensive. To Jewish law, they were literally unclean. Like, they literally have the ability to tamper your salvation if you touch them. Like, you must walk away from them. You must not have anything to do. And imagine this supposedly righteous man named Jesus sitting among them, not afraid of them. How offensive to the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are these religious leaders. They're these 
experts of Jewish law. They have incredible sway in, in, in society. And Jesus says of them in Matthew 23 that they attend to the minutiae of the Jewish law, but they neglect the weightier provisions of the law, such as justice and mercy and faithfulness. Imagine a religious leader so dotting the I's and crossing the T's and yet completely missing the heart of God for people who desperately need a savior. Their question was not sincere. Who is, who is your teacher? Like, like really, they needed clarity what was going on? It was a scathing rebuke. It was a condemnation to the one who would associate with sinners and to the ones who would follow such a man. Verse 12 says, but when Jesus heard this, He said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, really, is there anybody well? He's kind of using interesting language, right? Do you actually think that there's anybody well that doesn't need the great physician? Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things. Like, wait, 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 wait. The heart? You mean more than the murders, more than the crimes committed? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, sick, it says. Who can even understand the heart? A true religious leader, someone who has spent their life studying the law, someone who who sees themselves with a responsibility of leading people in the worship of God. How in the world could this person not be overjoyed to see Jesus reaching out to those who are most sin sick? How could someone be offended that the great physician would dwell among the sick? They couldn't rejoice. They just absolutely could not rejoice in Jesus' extension of mercy. And there's a reason for it. And that reason is illustrated in this story in Luke 7. You can turn there if you want. I'm going to paraphrase it. Luke 7, starting in 36. And this is the famous story of a sinful woman who's forgiven. Now, this is kind of an interesting story because the roles are reversed. Jesus is dining in the home of a Pharisee in this story. And he's sitting there dining. And while he's dining there, it says, he went into the Pharisee's house. He reclined at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who is a sinner... When she learned that Jesus was... Now, if, if they take a moment to say, a sinner, this is big sin. This is culturally taboo sin. This is violating and blaspheming God's law type of sin. Not like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is someone who has a status in society of sinner. This is that kind of person. And she, and she walks in. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Anybody feel a little uncomfortable if that just happened all of a sudden in here? That would be kind of weird, wouldn't it? Standing behind his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, and she kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, similar response, right? He would have known what sort of woman this is touching him for she is a sinner and Jesus answering said to him Simon I have something to say to you he goes on to tell a a parable of of a money lender who had two different people who owed debts a large debt and a small debt and he asks Simon who do you think is going to love the money lender more when he forgives the debt and Simon says well the the person with the largest debt is obviously going to be most grateful and he says you've answered well and he says he says you've judged rightly 
And then he says to Simon, and just cuts to the heart, he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. She's wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, they're forgiven, for she has loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. He who is forgiven little loves little. This is why the Pharisees could not rejoice in Jesus' extension of mercy to a wicked tax collector in a room full of the least of these. They're not aware of their need. They've been forgiven little, so they forgive little. They've loved little. They've been loved little, so they love little. And the question for all of us, the question for me today is, take inventory right now in this moment. Have you been forgiven of much or of little? Have you been loved much by the Lord? Or have you been loved very little? And the bigger question is, is the outpouring of mercy in my life congruent with that experience? Does it match? Does the outpouring of mercy in Corey Kent's life tell an obvious story of lavish mercy that was given to him? These are some of the things that I had to grieve over this week in my study. Look at verse 12 again. When he, Jesus, right, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Of course, Jesus, the great physician, should be dining and walking and dwelling among the sick. Can you imagine if your doctor called you and said you're, test, you're sitting in a hospital bed sicker than you've ever been and the doctor calls on the hospital phone and says, yep, it's cancer. And you're like, all right, what do we do? Oh, I, I can't, I'm not going near that. Can you imagine a doctor that wouldn't treat you for fear of being around sickness? Can you imagine that he wouldn't even enter your room? Could you imagine that he might even mock you for being sick and say, you know what, I'm sorry, you are now in the sick club and entitled to much less amenities in this world that we live in. Jesus goes on in verse 13 and he says this, go and learn. This is, if Jesus says go and learn something, probably a worthwhile study for us, right? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah Isaiah, Hosea, so many Isaiahs. Uh, Hosea 6, verse 6, prophet says the exact thing. What's going on with, with Hosea? If you remember Hosea, God is using the prophet of Hosea to show his people that they're phoning it in. They're doing it half-hearted. They're doing all the things, but they're violating God's law. They're showing up and doing the festivals, but they're forsaking him. They're not loving him. They're like the church. He says, your love has grown cold for me that we read about in Revelation And he's saying, I have, you look at the book of Amos, you look at Isaiah, all these prophets say the same thing. I have no use for your sacrifices if your heart is not for me. This is what it said in Hosea 6. Your love, this to Israel, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Have we been like that in our lives? Have we been half-hearted in our devotion? Have we only been in it for what we get out of it? And the moment it gets hard, we run. I have. He says, In Hosea 6, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than than burnt offerings. So what God's showing us today in this room is without a sincere, devoted heart, 
Sacrifice means nothing to him. And we understand this fully, right? We, we know the difference between mercy and sacrifice. Think about it. <clears throat> Who here has given a high five to the workaholic spouse parent who's never home but working all the time? Working all the time, never home, not at the games, not there to tuck in bed, not there to read the Bible, not there to bring comfort to the, to, to the other spouse. And what do they say? All of this I'm doing for all of you, that you might have what I never had. You know what? Nobody cares. You're not present. Your presence is more important than your money. How about, how about what it feels like to receive a lavish guilt gift from a cheating spouse? Who wants that, right? I want your heart. I want your faithfulness. Or the friend who just pursues you because of something that they can get from you. And the moment you figure it out and begin to set healthy boundaries and then boom, they're offended and they're gone. Mercy, sacrifice without mercy. God's no different. He has wired us to feel the same way. We want the authentic, genuine love and devotion. Jesus said this, blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said that in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, just a, a four chapters earlier in this book. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A merciful person has experienced a heart that knows it's spiritually bankrupt on its own. That's the condition of becoming a merciful person. You must realize that your own heart was morally bankrupt, spiritually bankrupt. You brought nothing to the table. One day this man named Jesus came by your tax booth and invited you to follow him and to learn with him and to dine with him. I love this quote that I read in my studies this week. This is famous pastor and author John Piper. He said, the key to becoming a merciful person is to become a broken person. You get the power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything that you are and everything that you have to sheer divine mercy. The power to show mercy from the real feeling in your heart that you owe everything you are and everything that you have. Are you a people who have received rich mercy today in this room? Because Jesus desires mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus desires compassion and not just works. Jesus desires love and not just duty. He says again in the the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And the good news for the broken, vile person like me today in this room is what Jesus says in the second half of verse 13. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Jesus tells this parable. It's a pretty familiar parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. It's in Luke 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves when they were righteous. Anybody like that here today? I've I've been like that. Trusting in your own righteousness. I've been going to church my whole life. I've been doing the right things. I put my kids in Christian school. I do this, I do that, I do that. I don't hang out with these type of people. I do this, right? We've all wrestled with that. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and he treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. And the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Not like those extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I, why am I talking like a prince in Cinderella? Sorry, let me, let me regroup. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. 
But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Pharisees didn't think they needed Jesus' mercy. And they also didn't think that the sinners deserved his mercy. Jesus said, I've come to call the righteous. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so it would seem today that the person who believes that they're already righteous have no need for mercy. And the person that believes that they're already righteous will receive no mercy. This is the person that can't be saved. But for the person that believes they're not well, for the person who knows that they're unrighteous, for the person who knows that they're the neediest of the needy, Jesus has authority over the sin that makes them sick. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus has authority over the sin that makes people sin sick. And he extends the invitation to the vilest of sinners to follow him. He's extending that invitation to me and you today. Follow me. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you have the desire to follow him, you're in. If you have no need for him, if you're righteous on your own, he says, you're out. And so perhaps a great thing to remember today is this. The greatness, the greater the awareness of my sin, the greater the invitation that Jesus offers for my forgiveness. The greater the awareness of my sin, the greater the invitation that Jesus offers for my forgiveness. And today, Jesus is offering you and I a chance to repent from our sins. And he's showing us in his word that you might not think you're, that real, you're really that bad of a person, but the reality is, is that you've offended a holy God and the separation has occurred between you and God and there's no answer for it. There's no number of sacrifices that you can do to wipe away that sin. So I have to send my son. I have to send my son and die unjustly to receive, take upon him the just punishment of the sins that have been on you and I since the day we were born. Doesn't seem fair. How can a baby sin? Doesn't make sense. But if you're born in Russia, you're a Russian. If you're born in America, you're an American. If you're born into sin, you're a sinner. And, it's, and anyone who's raised young kids know we don't have a hard time learning how to sin. It comes pretty naturally to us. And yet Jesus extends the invitation to follow him and to change our hearts. You mean like Stalin and Hitler and Epstein and Dahmer and Bundy, Philip Garrido? You mean like there's hope for these guys? Yeah. Yeah, if they know that they need a savior, there's absolutely hope. And people have said all throughout my life, probably going to be pretty amazed when we get to heaven at some of the people that we're going to see there. And hopefully we're amazed that we're there because of the mercy of God has been so good to us. There's mercy for the sinner who knows that they need a savior. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19. Those who don't believe they're sick can't be healed. Those who don't believe they're unrighteous they can't be saved. But those who know that they are unrighteous, Hebrews 7 says this, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him 
since he always, 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 always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray this morning. God, you are a holy God. You're set apart. There's no, there's no one like you. You understand the way that we're made. You understand our finite minds really cannot grasp how great and glorious you are. When we sing, great are you, Lord, and all the earth will shout your praise, we, we, we only have a fraction of an idea of the glory that's due your name. And we only have tapped into a fraction of our capacity to, to sing of those glories. God, you're a great and merciful God. And this morning, I know that there's two types of people in this room because there's two types of people that have been living in my heart. There's the vilest of vile sinners, the ones with secrets and their past, with things, insecurities, things they're embarrassed and shamed by, thoughts that go through their mind where they think, oh, if anyone even knew I was thinking this, they would not even hang around with me. There's Matthews in our hearts, but there's also Pharisees in our hearts. Those that say, well, I've just done, I've done just enough now and I'm on the inside. And man, how pathetic are those people who can't toe the line like I have? How pathetic are those people that don't come to church every week? How pathetic are those people who don't do this and that? God, would you forgive our hearts, our wicked hearts that are offended when mercy is extended because we forget how much mercy was required of Jesus to make it possible that we would leave this earth one day and be with him forever. That it would be possible that we could say of ourselves that we are the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus. Our works are filthy. Our works are, our sacrifices are embarrassing. But your righteousness imputed to us through Christ Jesus is more than enough to change a tax collector, more than enough to change a proud worship leader, more than enough to change a cheating spouse or an evil dictator or a vile criminal. Your mercy is extended today, but we also know that we're powerless to even receive it unless you first create a desire in our hearts for it. So I'm praying in a room like this that you would shake our hearts up right now. I pray that you would lean into us so hard that we, could, that we couldn't be content to just sit here and not respond. Perhaps we're overjoyed that we have always known we're a Matthew and we're overjoyed by your continual mercy and then the mercy that we see you extending to others. Perhaps we're sitting here and overjoyed in it and for that we worship you and we glorify your name. And we say, help us, help us be in more situations where we can share the mercy that you've given us. But for some of us, maybe we're just so lost we don't even know we need you. And it doesn't matter what I say right now. If you're not working in the hearts of someone, they will not see their need for a savior because we don't want to follow God in and of ourselves. But you can change us. You can make us like the tax doctor that would leave his booth and that would leave his fortunes and that would courageously step into the presence of a righteous person and believe that that person actually loves them and can actually change their life and receive them and is worthy of being followed by them. You can do that. You can also break the heart of a Pharisee. And so I pray that you would break hearts of Pharisees today where they would be in this room and myself is the worst. That you would break the critical spirit, that you would break the pride that causes me to not be able to be wrong, that you would, that you would break the fear in my life that only comes because I think that everything is on my shoulders to figure out in this world. That you would humble me, show me that you've 
always been present and ready to save to the uttermost. I pray that you would save people today. I pray that you would change the course of people's lives today. And we thank you and worship you because you have done this. You have made this possible. You have demonstrated that you have authority over sin. So God, now move in the hearts of your people, we pray. Amen. We've got a few minutes. And uh, we often respond, you know, as a worship leader, I often lead you in a response. This is a holy moment. This is a moment where the Spirit of God, through the power of His Word, power of His Spirit, has been moving in the hearts of me, of you. And I want to extend an invitation. We don't do this every week. This isn't a gimmick. This is an opportunity that if you're sitting in your seats and feeling convicted right now, probably the worst thing that you can do is just get up and go to lunch. And just because that feeling will change, you'll forget about it. But there's something about doing something demonstratively to respond to the mercy that's being extended today. Our great band is going to lead you in one more response song, but I want to invite you to come down. If you are the Matthew who is ashamed of what your life has been and you want the assurance of salvation as you repent of your sins, our elders are going to be down here to pray with you. If you are the Pharisee who says, I have known Jesus my whole life and yet my, my love towards him has grown cold, my love to others, my mercy is vacant because I have forgotten how much mercy was required to save my wicked heart. The altars are open. We would love for people to make that step to come and pray. Pray with our elders. The rest of us will worship together and we'll praise God for his rich mercy. Amen? Amen.